0: from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, February 21st, 2014. This week is episode 316. We're coming to you live from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio after a frantic start is Jessica Lawson at the controls.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Good
0: day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick
2: a rainy day in Pittsburgh, but I'm very glad to be here.
0: Good to have you. All right. And let's see what else. And joining us for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wilde. Today's segments include an interview with our guest, Derek Denae. Derek is the vice president of indoor environmental quality with Clark Seif Clark and the first vice president at the Indoor Air Quality Association. We're going to talk about some unusual indoor environmental quality projects, and also do a little uh, overview of the upcoming Indoor Air Quality Association Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Of course, we'll do our roundup at the end of the show with our technical director, Dr. Weil. Let's start by thanking our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors
3: shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: You can download shows from our website at iaqradio.com. You can actually stream them right from the homepage and then go to the link that says Go to Show where you can either download or stream shows. And, of course, you can get them from iTunes. Just go to their podcast section and type in IAQ Radio. We also have continuing education credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you set up with that continuing education program. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
2: Thanks, Joe. Now for this week's trivia question. Well, I have a tough beard. I've been shaving ever since I'm 12 years old. This week's trivia question is, what is metal whiskering? Back to you, Joe.
0: Hmm. Interesting, Cliff. All right. Today's guest is Derek Denae. Derek has been providing professional environmental consulting services for about 20 years now since earning his Bachelor of Science degree in environmental science from Philip University in Oklahoma. He's worked in both environmental consulting and environmental remediation across the United States and holds various industry-related certifications. Throughout his career, he has contracted, managed, and performed over 13,000 indoor environmental quality projects, with values ranging from under $25 to over $250,000. He's also currently the first vice president on the board of directors at the Indoor Air Quality Association and is a chapter director for the Indoor Air Quality Association's Phoenix chapter. And for the last 13 years, he's been operating as the vice president of indoor environmental quality for Clark Safe Clark in 2002 He opened the Clark Steve Clark Southwestern office in Tempe, Arizona. In this and previous roles, he's been involved with several unique indoor environmental quality and environmental health and safety issues. We're happy to have him as a guest today on IAQ Radio. And the Z-Man has picked out some great intro music for Derek.
1: This is my investigation. It's not a public inquiry.
0: Hmm. Interesting one, Cliff, as usual. Derek, do we have you on the line? <laughs>
4: yes, you do. Thanks <laughs> for that intro. <laughs> hey,
0: it's great to have you, Derek. You're one of, the, I don't know, I consider you one of the young up-and-coming guys in the industry here. Um, and, you know, its it's great to have future leaders of the organization join us. And, and we really appreciate having you this week. Just curious, how did you end up getting started in, in indoor environmental quality? Well, Joe, I have what's called a hero complex.
4: <laughs> I um, I get a tremendous uh, satisfaction from helping other people out uh, from a young age. and um, So I toyed with becoming a dentist or a physician, but I, I, I quickly realized that doctors only uh, work in one place at a time. They can only help one person at a time. Um, they only focus on symptoms, but they don't do anything to identify or correct the cause. And I thought that physicians would be socialized anyway, so I chose environmental consulting, where I can, uh, you know, I can exercise my hero complex and uh, to see different buildings, different industries, uh, different issues. You know, Monday I could be in a meth lab, Tuesday I could be in a high rise looking at uh, in a hospital on the next day, managing a flood, a school on Thursday. You know, looking at uh, for example, and on Friday I could be in a strip mall looking for a mysterious odor. So I really thought that that would be a nice challenge, and it has turned out to be very exciting. Um, and I get to play with all kinds of cool toys, and of course solve mysteries like uh, uh, sort of a CSI, Sherlock Holmes, Myth Mythbusters, Popular Mechanics, and this old house all rolled into one. So you really get uh, you really get a lot with indoor environmental quality. Are you are you
0: from Oklahoma originally? Is that why you went to college there, or is that I am just curious?
4: Yeah, I was born in the Air Force Base, uh, and uh, my father was in the Air Force, and uh, we lived in Oklahoma uh, all through my uh, elementary, junior high, high school, and college um, career.
0: I see. And then you you went to work with I guess prior to Clark C.
4: Clark, you had done
0: other worked with other companies.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, I moved from Oklahoma to uh, to the Los Angeles area. You know, this is this is pre-computer and pre, you know, pre-internet. So I had the old-fashioned uh, telephone interview. and fax. it was kind of hard finding environmental work in Oklahoma when I graduated from college because the oil field is a predominant industry there. And um, well, when I graduated from college, the oil field was pretty belly up in uh, Middle America. Um, so I needed to go someplace. Else. And since I wanted to do indoor air quality, I thought, what better place to do it than a place with tons of buildings like the Los Angeles Metro. <laughs> hmm. So uh, got a job there with a little consulting firm, uh, worked there for about a year, uh, went on to work for uh, the nation's largest remediation company at the time, um, and then worked for con- a couple consulting firms. So I finally landed in about 2000 at Clark Safe Clark, and I've been there ever since. Oh, okay.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Now, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. I know you had a question.
2: Yeah, I do. Uh, Derek, thanks for joining us. Uh, in your professional experience, do sick buildings really exist?
4: Well, that's a great question, and uh, I, I mean the short answer is yes, sick buildings do exist. But uh, there's a lot more to it than that, and I would uh, I would say, you know, having performed thousands of assessments, uh, there's there's crazy people. And there's sick buildings, and then of course sometimes there's sick buildings occupied by crazy people. <laughs> um, so we have to try to filter out the uh, you know the wheat from the chaff, or we have, we have to we have to find the answer. Sometimes it is related to the building. Sometimes the symptoms are not related to the building, and sometimes we don't know. But we assess the building and either consider it to be balanced, or we find problems that they could. Um, remedy that might improve the symptoms, but may or may not actually be the cause. Now, let me go.
0: I, I, I like the comment. I can't fix crazy, John. That's nice. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. Although I, you know, I'm curious, Derek. Going back to that, how it's it's tough. How often do you run into situations where you just can't quite? figure out what the issue is and uh, or if there is an issue and how do you you know how do you break the news to the employer that hey you're not sure whether there's an issue or not and, and and maybe this person is i don't know i've seen instead of crazy i've seen situations where people were using conditions in the building to get other things that they wanted that were not building-related. I'm just curious, how do you handle those kind of situations?
4: Well, you're absolutely right. You know, I try, to, I try to set an expectation for our customers that uh, we may walk into the building. And you know, I've, been, I've been in hospitals, I've been evacuated, and I walked in and within 30 seconds with a flashlight and just my eyeballs solved their problem. And I've been in other situations where we never find either a problem or the cause of their reported problem. You know, so you get all things in between. So I try to tell the clients, you know, set the expectation. What uh, what do you need? What can we do to help you address that need? And then let's go let's go down that path. But um, yeah, there are often other factors: uh, disgruntled employees, um, bad vision prescriptions, um, that you know you're not going to be able to find those things or address those things, and indoor environmental quality survey but um, you know having quite a bit of experience with, with buildings you know when when you hear the symptoms it sort of sets you down a path and uh, there's only a certain cast of characters i mean this morning i was at a, I had a big industrial fire here in phoenix last uh, last night and uh, so i've been there uh, since the wee hours and uh, you know these, these facilities have uh, chemicals, compounds, and things that are, you know, pretty scary. But your typical office building, there's only a, a limited cast of characters that can be contributing. And once you rule those out, um, if you don't find that anything is, you know, improper or out of balance, um, you know, you report that. And that if if it's a political issue after that, there's, there's not much more you can do for your customer. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned although we do, oh, go ahead I'm sorry Sorry. i was going to say although we do approach these projects from two aspects one i call the you know we're looking for real iaq issues the other thing we're looking for of course are the perceived iaq issues and i i tell customers all the time uh, a good example would be if you have a dirty supply register that does not mean you have bad air quality now you could have bad air quality with a dirty register and you could have a clean register and have bad air quality but the layman who looks at a supply register and sees dust is going to perceive that the air quality is bad if you just clean that register oftentimes the layman will perceive that the air quality has improved and of course you're not trying to fool anybody obviously you want to find the cause but i often tell the customer hey you know, let's get that cleaned and, and I, i'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that people will perceive that the air quality has improved. And uh, yeah, so way, it's, you know, it's common
0: well also when when they see some kind of action as the result of their concerns, I, I think that helps everyone involved. You know, they they've made a complaint about something and, and management's taking it seriously enough to bring someone like you in. And then you make a recommendation, they follow up and, and perform whatever it is you've requested, and then sometimes that's enough. I've got a similar building like that right now where, um, you know, exact same thing, dirty diffusers, you know, a little little bit of mold issue, but um, clean it up, and everybody seems to be pretty happy now. But anyway, you mentioned in that answer something about our chemical exposure, and, and somewhere I can't remember what literature we were looking at, but it's uh, Cliff had a question, What is a chemical exposure assessment, and who typically requires or requests this?
4: Well, Clark said, Clark, we have a pretty wide uh, array of skill sets. That's one of the things I really enjoy about working with uh, with the teams is that uh, you know we we don't know from one day to the next what we're going to be encountering, but we do go into facilities where there is a known chemical uh, known chemical with a potential hazard. And so folks are gonna be working with or around that material, and oftentimes we just wanna monitor those people uh, in their breathing zone generally you you place some sort of you know sampling device and determine what what are they being exposed to or what are they potentially being exposed to uh, during a, a normal a normal work uh event um and we you know everything from glutaraldehyde to formaldehyde to lead um In fact, we've worked on a project that uh, men were growing weepy and uh, growing breasts, for lack of a better term, at a compounding facility because they were getting exposed to uh, hormones at a compounding facility. And uh, that was a pretty interesting little project. It's a
0: pharmaceutical Uh, compounding facility? Yes. Okay.
4: Uh, Where they make birth control pills and... um, medication for people going through menopause and other things. And, uh, you know, there was some there was a route of exposure and a potential exposure. We needed to measure that, and then we needed to determine uh, some methods on how to reduce that because uh, it turns out that the men in the facility were not interested in growing breasts. <laughs> Cliff, let me turn it over to you.
2: Uh, okay. Um, let's change track there. What is a mystery odor, and can you take our audience... Through
4: your approach for investigating and dealing with it, sure. That's a very common call to get um, a customer or a potential customer will say, "I smell something, and I need you to come tell me what it is. I need you to do an odor investigation." Well, that you know, there's no such thing as an odor meter. The public, uh, after watching CSI and different shows like that, they have a perception that that we have a meter for everything and that they're going to give us instant results and that we're going to solve the episode in 30 minutes or less, give or take commercials. Um, You know, that's not the reality. But again, when it comes to odor, there's uh, a usual cast of characters. Uh, Probably the the number one odor issue is is sewer gas infiltration. And that surprises a lot of people that uh, they could have sewer gas infiltration. Most people don't understand plumbing. they don't understand that, you know, the building is essentially only separated from the sewer by, uh, you know, some water that rests in the pipe in a trap somewhere. And uh, if that pipe dries out, if that water evaporates, then, you know, sewer gases can enter the building. Um, And sewer gases are not always, um, they don't always smell like poo, to be quite frank. Um, You know, sewer gas can contain things like hydrogen sulfide, and methylmercaptan, and um, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, water vapor. Um, And so those things are difficult to measure because we can detect them as humans at very low parts per billion concentration. But most of our instrumentation only detects down to parts per million. And so you can walk into a facility that has sewer gas infiltration with a hydrogen sulfide meter, that's probably the most common mistake I see people make, and they'll say, "Hey, there's no hydrogen sulfide here." And of course, what they went, what they meant to say was, "There's no hydrogen sulfide at above one part per million. Uh, there's a big difference between none and non-detectable, as you both probably very well know. Um, so, uh, and also sometimes the the gases in the building are going into the sewer because of, you know, pressure differentials. Sometimes the sewer gas is coming into the building, and of course, those sewer gases change concentration. Um, you know, sometimes you have a lot of hydrogen sulfide, and sometimes you have none. So, that's probably the most common odor issue. That's where we usually start our odor investigations. Of course, we've seen everything from, you know, dead people in the ductwork trying to break into the facility, to uh, you know, dead critters in ductwork, um, to even fish. That a uh, disgruntled employee put in somebody's file cabinet. Those things are very difficult to, to track down because um, you can't often move from areas of high concent- or low concentration towards the high concentration. You can't normally walk to the right file cabinet. You can you, know, you can get within three rooms of it, but you can't. Our noses can't sniff out um, where that odor is coming from.
0: Cliff, let me, let me take, have you take one more real quick. I've got to break away for just a minute.
2: Okay. Um, you know, based on where you're located, uh, it's an area that has a lot of wildfires. Um, what common concerns do property owners have about remediation and residues following
4: on wildfire? That's a great question. Sort of a hot topic. You know, I've been working on wildfires, on legal cases, since about 2001. And, um, you know, the really, the traction has really increased over the past, I don't know, especially the last five or ten years. Um, you know, homeowners or property owners are concerned about several things. One is their, their health. Um, in a wildfire situation, you know, the... Authorities often evacuate um, a region that is impacted by a wildfire because I don't think anyone's going to argue that smoke can be a hazard uh, in addition to catching on fire and burning to death, obviously. Um, But once the fire is out, the question is, what are the impacts to your health of the residues that might be present in or around your home? Um, So there's a concern about health. Second, there's an aesthetic uh, concern. You know, people don't like their contents, be they professional or personal contents, to be covered with debris. Um, And then finally, one of the concerns that we see quite commonly is that, uh, you know, an insurance, you've been paying your insurance premiums for a lifetime, and uh, suddenly you have the opportunity to file a claim. Normally you wouldn't, but you know that your neighbor got a dollar from their carrier, and so you think you deserve a dollar, and that's that's real common to see as well. Um, I'm not saying that everyone's just trying to make a buck, but all three of those concerns are uh, are very common.
2: What about the chemicals that are utilized for putting out or suppressing, uh, you know, the fire? You know, we see the aircraft come in and uh, dump all this, you know, red or blue or green stuff all over uh, the area. Uh, Are people concerned about that or not so much?
4: Well, it depends on the fire and if that technology was used to put out that particular fire. And then, of course, if that material uh, impacted your home or business. Um, So those are pretty targeted areas. And, yes, people do have concerns about, you know, fire suppressant agents. But, uh, you know, if you think of how big of a swatch of area a wildfire would impact and how few of those how small of an area that those aircraft actually address, it's uh, its not as common as the questions about smoke residue in general. But, yeah, some people are certainly concerned about that, and we take that into consideration when we're doing assessments.
2: Well, while we're talking about wildfires, uh, what's different about uh, the residue uh, or places where you find residue in a situation where, where there's a wildfire versus a situation where the source of the fire is in inside the dwelling or inside the building. Are there any differences
4: uh, yes, um, you know, fire residue depends on essentially what was burned. Um, you know, if you had a uh, if you had a, a pan on your stove and in it you had I don't know, oil and uh, a and, and chicken and the pan, essentially the contents of that pan caught on fire, you know, you would probably be best served if you're looking for residue and nothing else in the house got burned. If you're looking for residue associated with that fire, you'd probably be looking for proteins or amino acids and, and the acids um, as a residue. If you're looking at a structure fire, uh, structure fires are heavily, uh, structures are heavily uh, populated with synthetics. You know PVCs, vinyls, rubber, um, and then pesticides, detergents, paints, perfumes. So you may be looking for a certain set, a fingerprint, if you will, especially in an in a industrial fire like I just left. Um, you may be looking for a certain fingerprint. But wildfires are are biomass fires. Think of a think of a fireplace. You have you put wood in it. You light the wood on fire. Um, you get char, which is wood that's partially burned and still has sort of the uh, the cellular structure. If you look at it under a microscope, you get soot or, or high-carbon content material, which uh, you could burn again. You know, everyone is always surprised that charcoal is actually burned plant material. Right. And you light it on fire and you burn it again because it has a high-carbon content. And, of course, if you burn that charcoal completely... You're just left with the with the salt, the the sodium, potassium, magnesium, and so with a wildfire, those are the those are the targets you're generally looking for in terms of residue. You're looking for char, you're looking for soot, and you're looking for ash to see if those if those materials are are present at, at quantifiable levels. Uh, you know, a lot of these wildfires occur in areas where you know, wood-burning stoves and fireplaces are common, um, and and just you know, fire in general is natural to the environment, and uh, so there will be certainly some level of those materials present. But the question is, is there an inordinate amount? And if there is, does it warrant a response, uh, some sort of some sort of cleaning effort?
0: And how do you uh, what sort
2: of sampling or testing do you normally conduct uh, to determine you know the absence uh, or presence of smoke contamination?
4: Well. The um, you know again it depends on the, the type of fire but uh, if you're thinking you're, you're specifically talking about wildfires uh, either one okay well you you need to determine what is your target um, you know in a wildfire you would want to collect um, some of the residue that may be present on the surface now there's a variety of ways to collect that residue you know ClarkSafe Clark we have a protocol that we, that we have adopted um, and um, I would say follows that, that protocol. At this point, several insurance companies have adopted the protocol we wrote. Um, so um, without being too proprietary, you're gonna collect some of that surface material and you're gonna send that to a qualified lab and they're gonna look at it in a way that you request. Direct microscopy is often used as a, as a uh, first line uh, analysis. Um, but everything from TEM, you know, transmission electron microscopy, to EDX, uh, the X-ray diffraction, trying to determine what is the what is the concentration of the material and what does the material actually consist of. Um, again, I don't want to get too technical for, for you, but if you want me to, I can continue that, that line of reasoning.
2: Uh, no, I think that I think that what you've given us is fine. We're actually gonna take a break now, uh, and, and break for halftime. We need you to hang on. We want everyone to hang on, and you know, let us sell a little bit of soap here and thank our sponsors. And we'll be back in about ninety seconds.
4: Fantastic.
3: Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
0: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray
3: Wolf Sensing Solutions,
0: who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at
3: wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors.
0: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com.
3: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Derek Deney. Derek, let's get into some more like unusual projects you've done here. Let's start with the flesh-eating bacteria. I, I understand you had a project that involved flesh-eating bacteria. Can you tell us a little bit about that one?
4: Well, as I, as I said earlier, we're uh, we're known for being very diverse, and uh, people call us when they get the, the, these outlier projects. And cooties are very common, and uh, flesh-eating bacteria, um, you know, Clostridium difficile, MRSA, um, all sound scary, and, uh, you know, I mean, certainly they deserve the, res- the respect um, that they're given, but uh, sometimes people, people overreact, and so what happens is someone will get an infection, Uh, in a facility, and uh, the the call would go something like, um, you know, Lucy in accounting had a MRSA infection, or she had necrotizing fasciitis, Uh, you know, we evacuated the building, can you help us, you know. Hmm. Ideally, they won't evacuate the building. They usually, we like when they call us and ask us what to do first. Um, but, you know, these things are actually very common uh, infections. And, uh, you know, we don't live in sterile environments, and most of us carry bacteria. You know, a third of us carry staph behind our ears, under our armpits. Um, these things are unavoidable. Now, obviously, if you have a an open wound or a, a immunocompromised situation, it's more of a problem for you. But, um, you know, I could make a T-shirt that says, wash your hands uh you probably probably save a lot of these things. But yeah, it's it's not it's common for someone to have an infection and then people to be worried about the residues left by that person. So either in a workstation or someone that they're caring for at home that's had an infection in a bed and they want to know, you know, what do I do to make this a safe place for my family or for my coworkers? Um do I burn the desk? Do I evacuate the building? Um so there's a variety of approaches, but you know, in a nutshell, these things are pretty common. You're already disinfecting much of your facility. Uh, you just need to address where that person is. And the key, I think, Joe, to, to these is a little bit of education. Um, and we usually roll that into our, our projects, is as, uh, as part of the as part of the protocol to so educate the customer. You know, what is it? What is C diff? And where is it? And how does it, you know how does it interact? Um you know, and then that normally takes the um the emergency or the the fear away, and now we can deal with facts and make some some risk management decisions that make sense for that you know for that facility
0: and how do you handle the the flesh eating bacteria one in particular? is that something that was similar to what you just described somebody that um had that, and they were worried that it was still whatever bacteria caused it was still within their work area.
4: That's correct. Yeah, we've worked on quite a few flesh-eating bacteria cases, and um, it's normally associated with a person who gets a diagnosis because they have they have an open wound of some sort and becomes infected. And of course, those infections or any infection, any open wound is going to cause you to have some uh, some effluent, you know, some some material is going to be in or around the wound. And then you're dealing with where does that get tracked? How does that, you know, where does? and uh, people want to know what they need to do. Um, and we try to we try to assist them in giving them uh, you know practical solutions. Uh, for example, bedding, uh, you know, someone if you had a if you're caring for a loved one at home and they had a, a serious infection, um, you know, do you want to Salvage that bedding, or you just want to discard that bedding. And if you discard it, how do you want to discard it? Who do you want to discard it? Um, there's also a stigma with all these things. There's a there's a stigma. People are um, concerned about the their health, and this is because they're unfamiliar with these types of uh, critters or, or cooties. Um, that that's frightening. But also, if it's a loved one, um, there's a there's an emotional attachment to some of these things. Like we we have to try to break that cycle. You know, it's just a bed. It's just a couch. You know, it's not Grandpa's bed. It's it's just a bed, and it needs to it needs to disappear in this case. And
0: what about I, I noticed something about ricin. I don't know if it was on your website or in the bio. Have you dealt with ricin issues? And what is ricin?
4: You know, it's funny. It's you know, Joe. I, I'm a long hair like you, and I I often tell people with uh if you see my ponytail. Running away, you probably ought to follow me <laughs> um we we deal with a lot of crazy you know off the wall stuff and i there's a surprising amount of things that happen in our in our world that we're just not aware of you know the, the media picks up some things, but most stuff that's really scary never makes the media but uh and you know, we worked on an apartment in particular that uh a fellow was in his apartment with uh you know creating ricin. Ricin is a is a toxin. you you can manufacture from castor beans, which are the same beans you use to make castor oil. Obviously you don't want to eat them because you can, can become intoxicated, but this fellow was trying to uh, I guess weaponize or synthesize and purify ricin. Now ricin you know, ricin's a toxin and we we use toxins so I mean it could be argued that maybe he was trying to come up with the next Botox um, or the next chemotherapy. Uh, agent, but I'm not sure that's what he was shooting for <laughs> you know what I mean and uh, so yeah, so we got the call. Uh, you know what do we do? Uh, you know the apartment community now has a an obligation to make to render that facility safe. You know the authorities come and they take the they take the big stuff
1: that
4: uh-huh. the residually contaminated property is the, is the responsibility of the you know the landlord or the building owner. And uh, they don't know what to do, and so that's often where we'll get called in. So this Rison case in particular was uh, you know sort of unique. Um, but how do you clean not, that up? Not not as unique as you would like to hope. And,
0: and, and how do you clean that up?
4: <laughs> it depends. I mean, you want to make sure that you're getting uh, contractors that are you know trained to deal with hazmat and protect it. I mean, uh, we don't want anybody to be injured on these projects. Normally, we err on the side of caution when it comes to things like uh, meth labs and ricin and uh, mercury spills. Even some things that can be cleaned, we're often recommending that they be replaced because you can guarantee that if it's gone, it's clean. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's it's and often there's a financial uh, question there. You know, maybe you can clean it, the metal components of an air handler, for example, but to replace it's three thousand dollars to clean it is ten thousand dollars and to test it, it's another five thousand dollars you know why would you do that for a three thousand dollar air handler and you know getting rid of the ends of the liability stream so a lot of times we defer to demolition on those types of projects i see cliff
0: good um what about
2: your experience with pathogens from birds bird waste
4: you know birds uh, particularly, nuisance birds, uh, pigeons, be the most common, uh, are pretty much the bane of every property property manager's uh, existence. Uh, you know, here in Arizona, we even have problems with woodpeckers uh, trying to drill holes in your building and make nests in the building. But pigeons are a pervasive problem, and um, you know the, the the damage they do to structures. For example, from you know, it doesn't rain very often in Arizona. And so um, when it does rain, it rains pretty good. And what will happen is that the nests, the nesting material, the dead pigeon carcasses, and the feces that is accumulated on the roof will very quickly block the roof drains in a rain event. And, of course, for, after a few minutes, you have a very nice swimming pool on top of the building. And then when the roof can't take that weight, you get collapse, water laden with pigeon waste flooding your facility. You know, it makes for an exciting morning. Um, but, you know, birds can carry diseases. Their pests that are on them can carry diseases. Um, histoplasmosis is a fungal infection from, uh, histoplasma capsulatum, if I'm saying that right, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, um, you know, cryptococcus, there's chlamydia, uh, is, uh, uh, can cause cysticosis. These are diseases associated with birds, not just pigeons, I mean, people who deal with, um, you know, domesticated birds also have these issues to deal with. But normally with a domestic bird you're controlling that waste and you don't have, you know, two foot deep of it in your air handler. Um uh, with the nuisance birds, that's that's a real possibility.
0: Cliff, let me let me you know what, we've got to get to the IAQA stuff, but before we do, there's a question here I wanted to get to and that is um what are zinc whiskers? <laughs>
4: that that normally catches people's eye. Um <laughs> Computer data centers uh, all have raised floors, not all, but raised floors are a common feature of a, a data center. And a lot of those raised floors, the bottom side of them, uh, are coated with a zinc coating. And uh, because the, the raised floor serves a couple of purposes, but one of the purposes, that raised floor is actually a duct. Air is moving through that um, through that raised floor in many designs as a, as a duct. And zinc will crystallize into these very small you know less than a millimeter filaments and as air moves through the stream or as you have vibration from above or if you start flipping those panels over those raised floor panels you'll break off those small filaments of zinc those crystals of zinc and they will float through the air And in theory they could be a, a human health hazard but most of those rooms are very plated. uh but uh, zinc is conductive, and when those pieces of metal, for lack of a better term, land on very, very small circuit boards that we now have, um, you get a, a uh, shorting. Basically, you get a you get an energy transfer across contacts that are not designed to have that energy transfer, and so your your equipment can fail uh, as a result. So um, that's 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 the zinc whiskers in a nutshell.
0: Huh. Is there any um, health effect associated with that exposure that you're aware of, or is it not really something that you worry about health effects so much, but more of a issue with the equipment?
4: Well, there certainly could be a health effect of breathing, you know, fibers of zinc, just like there would be a, any any time. I, I usually use the term: don't breathe too much stuff, be that asbestos fibers, or concrete dust, or silica, or in this case, you know, zinc fibers. Now they may not be small enough to get down into the terminal ends of your lung, but just I don't, I'm not a big fan of breathing more stuff than you have to.
0: Absolutely.
4: But um, <laughs> but usually these rooms are are, vague, are devoid of people, okay. and uh, it's more of an equipment question. I see. Um, you know why why are our computers failing? You know at a rate that is you know 20 times more than we would anticipate, and um, so sometimes that is that is the causative agent not always but it's uh, you know it's certainly a suspect
0: something to watch for an interesting interesting uh, project now i've got one more i want to make sure we get to the listeners because I, I when i talked to you the other day i found this very interesting we were talking about co2 carbon dioxide contamination and you know i'm not getting into low levels of carbon dioxide here which you know is controversial in itself, but these are fairly high levels, and you were telling me about some situations you've found here recently, I guess, where uh, these high levels came from somewhat new source. Can you explain to our listeners what we're talking about here?
4: Well, absolutely. Um, everybody loves soda or, or Coke or pop. I guess it depends where you're from, what you want to call it. <laughs> and uh, I'm even told that some folks, maybe even on this call, appreciate a, a cold beer from time to time. Uh, Once in a while I thought that was funny funny, Joe I really thought you were going to laugh Once in a while (laughs) (laughs) Data will too uh, (laughs) So essentially to carbonate And to deliver these these frosty beverages That we like um, Restaurants will use compressed CO2 which is carbon dioxide Normally they have these In small tanks Very close to the dispenser And um, the trend Now though is to install very large cryogenic tanks for liquid CO2 as opposed to compressed gas, uh, liquid CO2 on the site. And what happens is a truck, a delivery truck will pull up back up to the side of the building, connect a hose to a, to a tank that's usually internal to the building, and fill it with liquid CO2. Um, this is a great thing for saving people's back and toes because they're not having to you know, move around these... Heavy, awkward, small containers of compressed gas. Um, but if they fail, uh, if that if that system fails, the tank is is quite enormous. A catastrophic failure would certainly flood a building with c o two, which would displace oxygen, and you may have injuries associated with that. Um, but one of the other problems is these uh, these tanks are centralized and they're not they're remote from the dispenser. So the tank is usually on one side of the building and the dispenser is centralized. So you have a series of pipes and fittings, tubes, and the various uh, potential failure points where CO2 could leak um, into the structure. And if that leaks into a confined space, uh, particularly something like a walk-in cooler or a bathroom or you know a room that um, someone could walk into that room, be overcome by a CO2 uh, buildup, and suffocate. In fact, that has actually happened uh, in Georgia. There was a death in Phoenix. There were a couple of near misses recently. but we've worked on other projects in restaurants where this has become a, a concern an issue. Um, but, you know, I'm not I'm not knocking the cryo tank. I think it's a great idea for back and toe savings. But certainly, like any hazard, it's uh, it needs to be managed and uh, you know, for example, CO2 alarms might be a, a prudent um, option um, in buildings that have these systems. But uh and so, and I'm thinking that may become code um, in your town very soon. Hmm. But I said, but that's sort of a new. That's sort of a new and exciting. I don't want to say exciting. That's not the right term. I find these things exciting, but you know, it's a dangerous issue. You know, suffocation is real, and uh, what's you know, it's tough about these these suffocations is let's say the tank is in a basement and you go down to the basement i see you fall i run to your aid of course i become overcome i see us both down there and he has to make a decision is he gonna run down and try to help us out and also be overcome by something that he can't see taste or smell or is he gonna run the other way and try to get help um you know those situations are tough
1: Hmm.
0: interesting cliff um, what know. about plant
2: virus? It seems that your state seems to be prominent, you know, in the news periodically, you know, with these issues. I think I hear more about it in Arizona than I do anywhere else. Uh, have you had any experience dealing with Hanta?
4: Yes, but um, normally it's pre- it's pro- preventative or presumptive positive. If there's a building with a rodent infestation, a lot of times we are Approaching these these things as a presumptive positive, rather than someone saying I have a hantavirus infection, find out where I where I received that exposure. Um, but we have some interesting uh, Native American um, activities in Arizona, and so the deer mouse uh, is normally associated with the hantavirus in, in Arizona, and and uh, it is a, a tradition, uh, and, and I'm speaking out of uh, as a layman, not an expert in this particular thing. There's a tradition that you go to these these animals, they nest, and they build up a, a winter supply of, of pine nuts, for example. And so if you uh, want to have pine nuts, rather than you go pick them up, you can find a, a rodent's nest and uh, essentially uh, scavenge those pine nuts. But by doing so, you're getting a, a, a snoop full of uh, you know urine and feces and other rodent-related debris by getting into their nest and that's normally where we hear the, the infections come from but generally we uh, if someone has a rodent infestation we, we operate on a presumptive positive and try to take steps to mitigate the potential for a hantavirus um, exposure.
0: Derek, I've got a text before we go to the IAQA um, conference and, and then round up. We're running a little over folks. we got a, a, a technical problem started late so we'll probably go to about 10 after if that's alright with you Derek <clears throat> but um, I got a text question from a listener about any new or um any new or unusual indoor air quality concerns in healthcare settings, healthcare facilities that, that you've run across.
4: New or exciting well I know that the healthcare facilities are becoming more and more concerned with infection control and risk assessment or ICRA. Um, so if you're gonna do work, if 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 you choose you're a restoration company or a consultant choosing to do work in a healthcare setting. You definitely need to familiarize yourself with infection control and risk assessment in general, and then with the policies and procedures of that particular facility. Um, you know one of the new technologies, it's not a new technology, but it's a it's a newly adopted technology in infection control is the mobile mini enclosure. You know this is a self-contained wheeled m- containment mini containment and usually it has a HEPA vacuum and a HEPA filter um like a negative air machine or AFD air filtration device, um, piggybacked on it and it can roll from place to place. So when you're opening the ceiling tile or doing some work that might create dust in a um, hospital setting, um, you know, you can control that dust. Another uh, another interesting uh you know development in hospitals is a concern for noise. Um you know, noise in hospitals, particularly in places like the the NICUs and the, the neonatal intensive care units, where they have the preemies, um, you know, they are concerned about noise because uh, startling those those very fragile uh, children can, in theory, you know, result in their their death or their infirmity. And so uh, we we've been doing a lot of noise monitoring in facilities like that, and uh, you know, with the marvels of modern technology. Um, you know, whereas we would at one time have an industrial hygienist standing there with a, a noise dosimeter, uh, now we, we've developed some proprietary, you know, uh, noise monitoring stations that give feedback to people in real time that can email you or email me when there's a noise exceedance and that record the noise so we know if it's a Harley driving by or if it's, uh, you know, somebody talking too loud, so those those are sort of some some new exciting things in in healthcare settings. All right,
0: well that's that's helpful, Derek. Let me quickly ask a question on the um the upcoming Indoor Air Quality Association conference that's going to be I believe March 17th through 19th in Nashville. Tennessee. I hope I have those dates right. Um, curious, what you know? What uh, presentations are you most interested in, in checking out? And after you answer this, we'll, we'll go to a roundup and uh, get around the go. Ask Doctor Wild to step in and uh, have everybody ask one final question.
4: Okay. Well, uh, you know, the seventeenth annual IAQA meeting in Indoor Environment and Energy Expo or IE three. Is, uh, is fast approaching. And uh, the theme this year is you know bringing research to the practitioner. Um, in other words, providing some scientific foundation for the IAQA folks um, to base their, their approach to, for their assessments and remediation. And um, I'm pretty excited there's some pre-conference workshops this year that I'm very excited about. Um, there's also a social event this year that I'm pretty excited about, uh, particularly because, I, I, you know, I spoke to Don Weeks last year, President Weeks, and uh, I said, you know, we, we are so serious about learning. That's one thing about IAQA practitioners, whether you're in a remediation, whether you're uh, in consulting, whether you are a, a vendor, these, these events are very serious. They're learning opportunities, and, and people take great advantage of that. But I said, you know, we probably ought to have some sort of fun event so that, uh, that the spouses and significant others – and uh, see that we're real people too. We're not just science geeks. And uh, well, we I mean, may be science geeks also, but uh, give people a chance to you know, to, to interact uh, outside of the learning environment. Um, and we're excited this year. You know, we're again co locating with ACA, ACCA, Air Conditioning Contractors of America. And next year, again, we will be co locating with ResNet. Uh, which is uh, great they would they would be they would be with us again this year but as you know when you plan these uh these conventions these large conventions you have to make commitments years in advance and so they were uh, already committed to another location this year but uh, yeah we're very, very excited um
0: what what now, per- is there any
4: particular presentations you want to make sure you attend yeah uh, See, Joe, I I like all the presentations. In fact, <laughs> most of the time I am saddened because I'm not able to attend the two or three simultaneous great presentations that are going on, you know, around me. Um, but I particularly like presentations from people who live in other uh, geographic locations. That's my favorite thing because I, you know I work across the nation, but I, I want to hear from people who live. You know, they have this thing called snow in other states.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at about two feet of it <laughs> out the window here.
4: <laughs> hey, I've got well, two a few years ago, I was on an assessment, and I saw this patterning of water damage, and I couldn't figure out for the life of me where that was coming from. It was an odd pattern. It was very consistent, and I had a, a local realtor just kind of nudge me after I'd probably scratched my head for half an hour, and they said, Snowdrift, <laughs> you know, Snow. and that just, it's not on my radar. I so that. I like going to presentations uh, from people who are in different climates where they build different buildings a little differently, so that I can learn about the things that I don't see on a regular basis.
0: I got a, a text from actually from Eva King. Hello, Eva. Uh, that there's a, a separate track this year on um, healthcare. And let's see, yeah, dedicated track uh, addressing healthcare facilities. And that goes back to a question we had from a listener earlier. So that's, that's uh, good information. And thanks for joining us, Ava and Wei as well, Wei Tang, uh, both former guests on the show. Hey, why don't we go and uh, do the roundup, and maybe we'll get a couple more comments in between, and we'll get Dr. Wow on and uh, have everybody ask one last
1: question. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit them up, raw, high. Cut on, out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in.
0: Let's, let's go. Cliff, I want to make sure. Do you have any final questions you wanted to get in before we bring Dr. Wow on?
2: Well, just one. I really liked uh, Derek's uh, suggestion about this portable mini containment. I just wondered if he had any other um, tips uh, for remediation contractors about, you know, like a new technique or a new procedure or a new product that's you know,
4: kind of work well for him in the field. Sure. The, uh, you know, HEPA-shrouded tools uh, are becoming much more inexpensive and more commonplace. And, uh, you know, I believe in controlling the pollution before it becomes uh, pollution. <laughs> um, so, you know, HEPA-shrouded tools are not new, but there are many new HEPA-shrouded tools. Um, and there's many new cutting tools available as well to contractors. The choices are, are uh, you know, pretty... Pretty tremendous. You know what's great is, is, at one time I've been doing this for a while as have, as have all of you. Um, at one time, contractors were very specialized and they had one one tool in the toolbox, one one arrow in the quiver, um, and that had to basically be applied to every job. Um, and that obviously that's a bad approach. What's great is, right now you know contractors have access to information and tools that allow them to apply the appropriate uh, um, effort, the, pro- the appropriate item to each situation. Because as you know, no two uh, environmental losses are the same. And that's one of the exciting things about this industry is that you're always getting some sort of variety, but that too can be overwhelming if you only offer, you know, if you're a one-trick pony, uh, you're going to be in trouble if you need a, a zebra or a giraffe. <laughs> so, um it's definitely, you know, the the technology is available, the education is available, um, you know, to be able to 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 offer multiple solutions to your to your client.
0: Hey, Derek, I was wondering, what's the social event you mentioned having one, but I didn't know, I didn't catch what it was.
4: Oh well, we're going to be having a uh, it's the Wild Horse Saloon I A Q A party. It's a uh, it's going to be in downtown Music City. It's going to get us off site so that we get to see a little bit of the town that we're in, uh, Nashville. Of course, is the town that we'll be in, and um, so you know, there'll be uh, a, a live band, and uh, they'll have you know pool tables and foosball, shuffleboard, uh, line dancing. I know Joe, that's one of your favorite things. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, be right up there with it. <laughs> smokehouse barbecue dinner. It'll be uh, it'll be something fun to do. It's uh, I believe it's Tuesday tuesday the 18th from six to ten it's a separate event ticket you would have to purchase but i think it's certainly again i think it's a you know it's, it's worth a look right, um, i'm like certainly going to be there to have a good time i
0: may have to just join you there let's get the good doctor on the line here and see what kind of comments or questions he might have <laughs> Dieter, do we have you? Yes, I am here. I'm good. Sorry. Uh, well, in our case, good afternoon, good morning to Derek. We're running a little late, Dieter, but thanks for sticking around for us.
5: Oh, no problem at all. Anyway, I agree with several uh, uh, comments which uh, Derek made. But anyway, I as I wrote them down, Andy has won again. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he, or did John win? So no, John won
0: this week, Andy uh, John, won last week. John beat him. Oh, okay, last week, Andy won. John okay, beat him Andy's name
5: was mentioned, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dieter. Anyway, uh, I, I, I'm doing industrial hygiene work and indoor air quality work now got since 1968 or something like that. And uh, I agree with Derek. Uh, I like it very much. I don't work out of one office where I'm every day from eight to five. I crawled around in coal mines and uh, in coal mines, and I know how mattresses are being made. I was in forgeries, uh, micro—I mean, you name it, I have been there. Um, and uh, I agree with him. Uh, one of the big problems we have with air pollution are the people. <laughs> uh, people are problematic, and. Um, and some of them, some of the things which I investigated, uh, yes, I had to agree with them, but in many instances, uh, it was just it was at best a nuisance problem, and that can be taken care of. But um, uh, they were complaining and uh, that they were getting sick and that they had sniffles and they were coughing and what have you. I don't know about that. And the other thing is and I'm sure Derek has run into that. What do you do with super sensitive people? Let's assume it's a real honest person and everything he or see, she uh, says is correct and not exaggerated. Can we do something about that?
4: Sure. Um, you know, we have to determine who is the client and if it's a commercial building and a person is claiming that uh, they are super sensitive one of the options in the in the tool bag is uh, is relocation right time the person cannot be satisfied you know and we have, when we find an issue we find a problem we have to determine is it a tiger or a kitten you know, yeah. we find that there is a, there is a small issue that could be remedied to improve the air quality but this is a kitten and maybe we find this carbon monoxide in the building Okay, this is a tiger we need to address this aggressively and someone could really get injured uh, if we find some kitten issues and economics are not there to repair them, oftentimes we'll recommend relocation of that employee.
5: Well, uh, that certainly is one way uh, uh, other people on the other side say, "Hey, we just lay them off and we don't have a problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can't do that anymore, and that is okay, okay with me depends on what and state I'm sure you have area. run into that one also. I just was in an office which was much better kept than my office, certainly uh, a, a cleaner. I think they vacuum clean there twice a week or something like that. And somebody uh, complained in that office about a smell, a funny smell. <laughs> you mentioned those before. And uh, said, Hey, can you come right away? And I said, Yeah, I can come in two days or whatever it was. And I was there. And of course, I walked in there, nothing, absolutely no smell whatsoever. I was with a gentleman who showed me around from the from the same employer and he showed me the office. He said, Do you smell anything? No. Then there was a secretary outside of this office and he said, Oh yeah, today it doesn't smell at all, but you should have been here yesterday. I have heard that a thousand times.
4: <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. the old
5: the card- mechanic. hundred times. <laughs>
0: Cliff, I know you're an odor guy. I have to go look at an odor project right after this show, actually. They are fun to try and track down, and uh, sometimes a little more difficult than people realize. Dieter, any other quick
5: comments before we wrap it up for today? Uh, yeah, uh, I have a question. In fact, I am, I am semi-involved in the case. Somebody called me, and it has something to do with burning wood. Now, I know that whatever we are going to burn, whether it's your... Uh, a silk uh, scarf or your wool or cotton sweater or wood or coal or uh, anything uh, anything else, we will never, ever find something that burns very nicely with, quote, non-toxic uh, uh, effluent. Uh, they are all bad, one way or another. And uh, But, yeah, there are people that say, hey, how do I measure that? It's a fireplace next door. And uh, I said, I smell that. And I can understand that, you know, I don't want to smell that when I go to bed at night and my neighbor stuff. But so can, you, can you measure something in the air? And I said, yes, I can measure that. That's no problem at all. A, it's going to be expensive, and B, it's inconclusive, because I know what I kind of get, uh, or what I can get. But it's probably in the part per billion range. It gets diluted even from one house to another. And, uh, you know, how, uh, what am I going to do there? I, I mean, maybe Derek should just move to another house. What do you think,
4: Derek? <laughs> well, well uh, there's a difference between detect, you know, clients have an expectation, and then uh, but we have a reality, in, and we have to determine, first of all, is it detectable? And if it's detectable, the qu- next question is, is it dangerous? So, right, detectable is usually the easier question to answer. Sure. But is is there an impact that they could expect? You know, a, a, a health impact. But well, when it comes to things like, you know, smoke, this is a very this is a very difficult question to answer. I am not qualified sure. to answer it. I don't believe anyone that I know in this industry is qualified to answer it. But um, you know, sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand. Um,
5: yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, I've heard, I, I saw something about this because I live in a rural area and we see similar issues and, and people had recommended going to um, the fire department, actually, and and talking to the fire department about it and then just, you know, verifying visually and with uh, cameras that the smoke was going to that other home. And uh, there was something about, I can't i have to look into that for you, Dieter. I, it was a really good discussion of the... Um, possible solutions to that problem because normally they try first to you know let's go over and talk to the neighbor and discuss the fact that hey you're outdoor more often i see it with outdoor um furnaces uh, and especially the coal ones they they just stink to high heaven around here and uh, that's one of those really tough situations you're in i'll see if i can't find a little more detail from that past conversation
4: so you gentlemen are t- telling me that people actually heat their homes
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we do on occasion, especially right now.
5: <laughs> in my, my case, in my case, yes. And I well,
4: Arizona is warm and sunny, so you gentlemen should visit any time. We are, we would love to have you.
5: Yeah, but wow. in my case, that's exactly what uh, the same problem. So uh, I don't know what to do, and I. Uh, and it's i mean it's a, it's the family and you know, you, you tell him said hey i can do an analysis uh, uh for 100 dollars i can make one for 500 dollars and i can make one for 5000 and i said hey he said people uh, people have uh, looked at components of cigarette smoke and <clears throat> The estimates are uh, there are at least 500, and uh, some others say that there are more than 2,000 components in cigarette smoke. Now, which one is the bad actor? I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Certainly, it's not the carbon monoxide. I know that.
0: <laughs> Dieter, we've got. No, we'll, we'll go into carbon monoxide again here soon. Hey, any okay. um, Cliff? Anything you'd like to finish with?
2: I'm done, Joe. I would just like to thank uh, Derek for joining us. Uh, very
5: informative interview. Okay, and Derek, How do we get back to him if we need or anybody wants to get back to him?
0: Great question, Dieter. Uh, first, before you do that, Dieter, or Derek, anybody that wants information on the IAQA conference, I assume you can go to iaqa.org, and it would be prominently displayed on that website.
4: That is a true statement, and if you uh December 15th, there's a substantial discount, so I would encourage... Folks, to uh, to go to iaqa org and look at the link for the seventeenth annual meeting and uh, and sign up soon to uh, to save a little money that way you can buy your darling something special with the uh, with the extra
0: and anything you'd like to add before we go and if you could get listeners your contact information or website we'd really appreciate it and thanks for joining us Derek it's been a lot of fun
4: well thank you anything you'd uh, like to add yeah, I'll give you, uh, you know, here's here's my, my, my take is there are a lot of very committed people in the indoor environmental quality industry, and they're all trying to do good work, and I really appreciate that. Um, there is no right answer many times, but uh, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know anything. And, and so, you know, I just encourage our peers to continue learning and to continue from a good reputation, and so that we can solve problems and and help people, and uh, if anyone has questions that they'd like to ask me directly, um, I'll give you a phone number and an email if that's appropriate, Joe. Please do. Okay. Uh, My cell phone number is 602-757-8907, and my email address is Derek, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, Denay D E N I S at c s c e n g dot com, and if that was too fast, you could just go to our company website www.csceng.com dot dot com, and you can track me down there.
0: And that's Clark Safe Clark. I I messed up the pronunciation earlier, but uh, Frank I met Franco. Uh, seems like a great guy, and 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 nice nice of them to allow you the time to help with all your volunteer activities and uh join us today on IAQ Radio. Thank you to uh yourself and also to the, the owners at the at the company for uh having you join us.
4: Well, thank you and keep spreading the good word uh the more we the more we learn, the better we'll all be. So, thank you for uh, your you know, achieving your mission, fellows.
0: All right. Thanks again to Derek Dene our guest for this week on IAQ Radio. Great stuff. Little kind of unusual indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality projects. A little overview of the IAQA conference and uh, great comments also from Dr. Wow. Thanks joining for joining us, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, my co-host, the Z Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good job, Cliff. Thanks, Joe. And next week we're, we're still we've got several different options. Next week we're going to have some shows over the next three weeks. Um, one with the IICRC and Howie Wolf and Millie Washington. We're going to talk about the S five hundred a little bit more. Um, there are new technical journals coming out too, so we're going to bring John Downey on and Claudia. Let me get the, what's the last name again on that. Oh, no, Lozell. Uh, interesting. Very interesting. Um, lady in charge of the hard surfaces division there some great stuff on subfloors and flooring inspection and so on and so forth something that a lot of our listeners deal with on a regular basis really looking forward to having claudia join us so check the website out we'll get those three dates and uh, get the uh, different guests organized over the next day or two here and please come back and join us next friday at noon for the next episode of iaq radio we